0: The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces on that day the lord made a covenant with abram saying to your offspring i give this land from the river of egypt to the great river to the river of euphrates to the land of the kenites the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. If you're a visitor here, I'm um, the pastor here at Sacred City Church. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, Before we jump in this morning, I've got a few quick announcements. Number one, um, as we begin filling up and as people become checking us out, we really want to serve those who are visiting, who are coming for the first time. We want to serve them well. So one thing that I ask all of us to do, if you call Sacred City your home now, is park in a different spot than than right out here in the parking lot. Behind the cottages, there's parking all behind the cottages, and the sidewalk leads right to it. You just kind of have to go around to find it. And you can also, as long as there's not snow, you can park down at the pool down here and and take a little hike up the steps and and come here. This parking lot out here is pretty small. We like to reserve it for people who either get here late or people that are just visiting with us the first time. Husbands, drop your wives off at the front door. There you go. Serve your wife. Lay your life down. That's how we do it. And also, the balcony is open. Um, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a nursing mom or you want to, if you've got a kid who's having, having some difficulty and you want to go to the balcony, that's completely cool. Uh, stairway on both sides. Um, another quick announcement, our children's ministry. We've got a little bit of a different vision for a children's ministry than many churches uh, in the evangelical world today. Uh, we believe that um, it's the parents responsibility to shepherd their children in such a way that they are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. they learn what it means. They learn the gospel. They learn what it means to, to, um, live in a relationship with Jesus. They learn scriptures. Um, we're, we're, big on catechism, that kind of stuff that happens in the home. Um, what we're not big on is parents What we can be, we're trained to be, um, really abdicate our responsibility and drop our kids off. We, we just drop our kids off at the public school system, hope that they learn to read. We drop our kids off at Sunday school, hope that they learn something about Jesus this week. Um, we don't want to cultivate that environment. So one of the ways for us to do that is we, we've kind of set a cutoff. And, and many of you might not know about this, but um, I just want to reiterate it today. Um, we're, right now, we're convinced that we're not going to have any, any classes for kids above 10. So if your kid is 10, we want him, him or her to be in the service. You might not think they're mature enough. Um, we think that they are. We think that they can process things. and We think you'll be surprised at some stuff they pick up from the sermon. We think you'll be training your kid to sit with discipline, to listen to the reading of God's word under the authority of God's word, and not just, you know, coloring some pictures and, 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 and playing games uh, downstairs. So we really encourage you to get your kids 10 and up into the service. Um, if they want to serve downstairs, they can serve on a schedule once a month, but don't let them go down there every single week. Uh, we really want to cultivate a family environment here, and we also just want to see the Word of God do its work in your, in your kids' hearts. Um, for those in, that are serving in the children's ministry, we do love you and appreciate you. Uh, we want everyone, really, literally, we want everyone to serve in the kids' ministry. Um, the more that do it, the less often we have to do it or we get to do it, but next week... There is a children's ministry meeting um, immediately following. I think it's immediate, is immediately following the service. Three thirty. I'm sorry, three thirty next Sunday. Is it here or in the cottage? Downstairs. Downstairs. downstairs three thirty next Sunday. Husbands, we want you to serve with your wives. When your wives serve downstairs, we want you to be downstairs as well. All right. We want you to be loving on kids, to be shepherding kids, just like your wife is. So, uh, we encourage you, if, especially if you have a kid down. If you if you have a kid that goes downstairs, be serving be serving. And it's usually once a month or once every two months. Um, it, it's not that extensive. And then uh, the next the next thing is next week, we're going to be taking a break from our series in Genesis uh, because it's the beginning of Advent. Uh, it's the Advent season is starting next week. So we're going to have a whole Advent series four weeks leading up to to Christmas and then a Christmas Eve service we'll have here as well. Um, so it's going to be great. It's one of my favorite times of year. I, I look forward to Advent. Um, all of our songs will be Christmas worship hymns. So, um, you'll, a lot of the songs you'll know and you'll be like, Oh, that's got good theology. I've never really known the words before. You'll you'll see the words on screen. It was a great time last year. it will be a great time this year as well. And with that, um, One of the things that we're passionate about at Sacred City Church is raising up the next generation of leaders. We want to be a church that plants future churches. Even though we're just just over a year old right now, we want to be a church who's forward-thinking, who's sending out men and women as missionaries into our culture that plant future missional communities, that plant future churches. So one way to do that, and actually the only way to do that, is is if, if we get some young men in the pulpit, we get some young men learning how to preach learning what it means to be under the authority of God's word learning what it means to get up here and let and let it and let it loose really and what that means is i tell everybody my first 100 sermons were awful awful okay bad they recorded some of them i try to delete them i'm like get them off the internet i don't want anybody to know that was me right and any preacher the first hundred sermons, you, you got to learn. you got to learn what it means to, to have the weight of the Holy Spirit on you, to have this word inside of you, to be able to preach it without, you know, having the angst and having this pressure, but not being angry. And, not, and it's, just, it's hard. And to live a real life at the same time, right? You don't get floated up to the third heaven or something when God just gives you a manuscript and says, oh, I just say this, okay, but say it with passion. Oh, okay, I can do that. No, it's, it's a little difficult. So what we're going to do through, the, through the, uh, the season of Advent is I'm going to have two of our young men here from the church uh, preach during Advent. So we're really looking forward to it. And um, I just want us to get in the habit of that. We're going to get in the habit of giving young guys a shot that feel called, that feel that God is leading them into the ministry, leading them to plant a church or leading them to the pastor. So we're just going to do that. We're going to do that around here. So get, get used to it. I'm excited for it. Um, It also gives me an opportunity to be in the crowd, to be amongst the congregation, to hear from somebody else, to be under the preaching of God's word, to to give my soul some rest uh, for a few weeks at a time and uh, and then come back ready for bear. Right. Ready to to charge hell with a squirt gun if I have to. Right. So that's coming in the future. We're pretty excited about it. We are thankful that you are here. I'm going to jump right in and uh, we're going to pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your infallible word. That your word is not like the word of a great novel. Your word is alive. It's living and active. That it divides. It cuts to our heart. It cuts through bars of iron. It cuts through hardness of heart. It cuts through the idols that we built up. It cuts through our baggage. It It cuts through all the arguments that we try to stack up against it the word of God pierces us. And I pray today that you would give me the accuracy of a sniper or the accuracy of a surgeon with your word. That I would that it would cut not to wound, but it would cut to heal. It would cut to open us up so you can operate. I ask that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords. I ask that the gospel would penetrate my heart and it would. this word would come from a heart that's been changed by the gospel. And it would land on ears that are, have been changed and are being changed by the gospel. Do something unique in us today. We put all of our hope, all of our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you liked last week, you should love this week, all right? Last week was one of the most interesting and fascinating stories in the book of Genesis with the appearance of this guy named Melchizedek. But this week is one of the most important scenes in the whole book of Genesis. All right. In fact, I will go as far as saying you cannot understand the Bible without understanding our text today. It is literally the key that will unlock the entire Bible. And once you understand it and once you believe it, it's the key that will unlock your soul. I have met many, many, many religious people who have grown up inside the church, attending Sunday school, even teaching Sunday school, attending youth ministry and kids ministry and going off to youth camp and then going off to Christian colleges who have never discovered what we're going to learn today. And many of those who have grown up doing the Christian path and then later in life come to the realization, oh my goodness, I didn't get the gospel. It has only been about three years since I first made this discovery and my life took a dramatic turn. I'm telling you that what we are going to learn today, what we're going to read and and study today... Is dynamite. It's dynamite. Sometimes it's got a really long fuse, but if it gets lit, it is going to explode. Okay? Sometimes it might explode right now. It might explode during a sermon. It explodes in your heart. That but that sometimes that wick is a little long. It might take to you get home. It might take a year from now, six months from now. Hopefully not 10, 20, 30 years from now. But that lick, but that wick, once it gets lit, it will explode. And my prayer today is that your wick gets lit and God's gospel explodes in your heart. And if it does, I can promise you this. If it does, you will never be the same again. Never. It's not like a religious experience where it kind of fades and wears off and you just settle into normalcy. When the gospel goes off in your heart, you'll never be the same again. So let's dig in because we have a lot to wor- of work to do. Listen, you are fat and happy this morning, all right? I know you are. You ate plenty, okay? You've probably, had, you've probably got turkey hangover. You've probably had it two or three times. So we're gonna settle in and we're just gonna live off of those carbs this morning, okay? Those carbs are gonna keep us focused and thinking because I've got a lot of work to do in this one chapter. Um, it's, it's just, a, it could be a whole series, okay? So I've got a lot of, so let's just settle in. And let's get ready to do some work. Are we ready? Okay, Genesis 15. Let's go there. Genesis 15, verse one. When you're there, say there. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some sit back on the stool. I want you to carry go along with us. You all can also check the Sacred City app or the U Bible app on your phone and follow along with us. All right, Genesis 15:1 starts off like this. After these things. Okay. After these things. Now that is a, those are connecting words that should point us back to what happened last week. So I want to set the stage for us a little bit. Okay. This is connected to what happened last week. Now let's just go on just for a little bit more. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Now this is important. It's the only time that this phrase is used in the Pentateuch and the Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right? It will be later used anytime God speaks to a prophet. But right now in the first five books of the Bible, this is the only time it's going to be used. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Abram, in Genesis 20, will tell us later, Abram is the first prophet. He is speaking on behalf of God. God is showing up, giving him his words, and Abram is sharing those words with other people. Okay? So Abram is a prophet. And what does God say? The first thing that God says when he shows up to him is this. Fear not, Abram. Fear not, Abram. Now, I want you to put yourself... You, hopefully, I'm going to have to set the stage if you weren't here last week. I want you to put yourself in Abram's sandals here for a minute. All right? He's old, like 75. And he just went on a 100-mile hike, right? This three-week-long journey that culminated in a battle against four kings. Grandpa Abe, well, he ain't really a grandpa yet because he doesn't have any kids or great, but he's an old dude who, goes, who gets sent and goes after chasing after his crazy nephew Lot, a hundred mile trek, three week long journey, ends in a battle. Abram and his allies slaughter the armies and then make their trek back to the promised land. Once at the promised land, if you remember, Abram has this mystical encounter with Jesus or Jesus's body double, right? Melchizedek. And also the king of Sodom. This little encounter is a test to see who and what Abraham or Abram will put his trust in. If you remember, Abram passes the test and gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. So Abram tithes before the law was even put in place. I want you to feel this. See, Abram is now physically exhausted. He's probably spiritually drained. He's spent. Not only that, but he's most likely fearing a backlash coming from the four kings that he's just whooped. Right? If you know anything about the the stuff that goes on in the Middle East, it's not like somebody drops bombs and the other guy just goes, oh, no big deal. Right? If you know anything about what's going on in the Middle East, shh. Right, it's just back and forth Back and forth So Abram goes and conquers these four kings He comes back, he's drained In his mind he's going, they're coming Oh man, way to go Lot I started started up the hornet's nest Now, they're going to get allies They're going to come back, they're going to raid us And then what we're going to do So he's physically exhausted He's spiritually drained His wife is barren His crazy nephew Lot Is back in his camp Abram has got a lot on his plate, and right now, he's kind of freaking out. You may know how he feels. He is just stepping out of a great battle, and he is physically, emotionally, and spiritually spent. Have you ever felt like that? And I want you to see, look how God responds. Fear not, Abram. calls him by name. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. Now, before we get into this, I want you to see that God responds very graciously. to Abram. Scripture says that God knows our frame. And here God is telling Abram exactly what he needs to hear. Abram, whoa boy, fear not. I am your shield. You just won that battle because I protected you. It wasn't your great planning. It wasn't your power or ability that rescued you and won you that victory. It was because I am your victory, Abram. I am your shield. That statement is just laced with power. I am your shield. Nothing can get to you unless it goes through me. Mm. Can you imagine what our lives would look like if we really believed that God was our shield? That he was our all-powerful and all-seeing protector and nothing could happen to us that was outside of his control? But like us, Abram is finding it really hard to believe God. He's finding it really hard to trust God. God at his word. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is a a Eliezer of Damascus, is a slave kid. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Look, right here, Abram is straight up calling God out. He's, look at how many times he says, you, you, you. God, you're my shield. You're, my reward's going to be great. I find that really hard to believe because look what you're not giving me. Look what you haven't done. Wow. Abram has his doubts. I hear what you're saying, God. I'm going to bless you. You, Your people are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. You're going to make my name great. I hear what you're saying, God, but I've got my doubts about you. I'm finding it really difficult to believe that you are going to multiply my ancestors across the globe like you have promised. I don't even have an heir and I'm old. I'm just too old. Right? I'm finding this hard to believe. Abram is looking at his current circumstances and he's perplexed. Now, I hope you can see from this that it's okay to doubt. It is perfectly understandable that you find some things about our faith hard to believe. But I also want you to see that Abram is not content with his doubts. He's very much like... Doubting Thomas, right? I don't really know if Jesus is alive. Until I see his hands, I won't believe. And Jesus graciously appears and says, put your hand right there. Put your, feel my scars. Feel the wound in my side. And then what does Thomas do? Thomas believes. He's not like some of us who are professional doubters who just really enjoy doubting. And we're, gonna, we're, pretty, much, we're pretty sure we're just going to doubt for the rest of our life. We're not doubting to push us into faith. We're not doubting that hopefully we bring that doubt to God. We're just doubting. We're just professional doubters. We just like to have that gray area. So then anytime we get off into sin and do what we want to do, we can just blame it on our doubts. That's not what Abram does here though. Abram is not content with his doubts. He is doubting God, but he's not content with his doubts. So what does he do? He actually brings them to God. He says, God, I don't know about you. You've promised all this great stuff, but look at my circumstances. Look at my life. I don't know about you. I don't know if I can trust you. He's telling God about his doubts. This is a great picture of what faith actually does. Faith doesn't block out all doubts. Faith takes in a doubt and wrestles with it and takes it to God. Our doubts are meant to make our faith more secure and more sound. I I really have a problem with Christians who, who just don't like to doubt and, and, and oh you shouldn't doubt you shouldn't doubt You know, blah, blah. our faith can handle doubting doubting actually makes our faith go deeper the person who has faith can still have his or her doubts they just bring them to God and ask for clarification this is what it looks like to fight to believe this is what it looks like to fight to believe some of the difficult things that God has said to us in scripture so Right here we have Abram. He's having this conversation with God. And God says, fear not. I'm protecting you. And your reward will be great. And Abram says, that's really hard to believe since I got no babies. Let's just, let's just cut to the chase. It's really hard to believe. I'm old. My woman, she's old too. I've never seen an old lady have a baby like this. This is hard to believe, God. I'm just letting you know. And verse 4. And behold the Word of the Lord came to him, so God speaks to him again, straight he speaks straight to his doubts. Look at this, verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him this man Ele, he's talking about Eliezer, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir, and then he brought he brought this is, this is this would scare me right God says. He's kind of arguing with God, and, he, and God looks down and goes, "That ain't, no, no. He's not going to be your heir. Your son will be your heir." Step outside. I'd be like, "Oh no!" God's calling you outside. You are. I'm thinking I, my life is over right now. It is over. He's taking me behind the woodshed. Wood woodshed, and this is not going to go well for me, right? But God graciously says, "Step outside." He steps outside. He says, "Look to the heavens." He looks up, and it's a beautiful, clear night. Filled, the stars of the sky are just, are, are just full, right? And he says, that's how many your descendants will be. That's how many your ancestors will be. If you can count those stars, that's how many your, your descendants will be. That's, that's your heritage right there. Through this one son. Can you imagine this moment? Exhausted, afraid, in doubt about God's plan for your life and God audibly speaks to you and then he takes you outside and gives you a picture of your destiny. And one of the things I'm I'm shocked at, God doesn't say, Abram, look up at the sky. If you obey me perfectly, this is what you get. He comes outside and says, look up, look up at the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Doesn't even sound like Abram's got a choice about it. We know Abram wants it. But God just says, this is what's going to happen. And what happens here? Here we are, sacred sea. I'm just going to tell you right now. This next verse is the key that will unlock the rest of the Bible for you. It's the key that will free your soul and give you an unshakable and unmovable ankle anchor through all the storms of life. This is the, the anchor that holds right here. This next verse, verse six. And he, Abram believed the Lord, that word Lord. That's the covenant word for God. It's not God Elohim, like a big, you know, guy way up in the sky. It's Lord. It's the personal God. And he believed the Lord and he, look at this, counted it, his belief to him, to Abram as righteousness. We got to read that again. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There are three really powerful words in this sentence that we've got to break down and and, and study. Now I I want to on this verse. I I really want to preach the rest of my sermon on this verse. All right? But I got to finish the whole chapter. So I'm just going to say this is worthy of a lot more time than I'm going to give it today. It's worthy of study. I, I literally believe it is the key that unlocks every other scripture. But let's jump into these three words, okay? He believed. So believed. And he counted. Counted. Righteousness. So we need to look at the word. What does believe mean? What does counted mean? And what does righteousness mean? All right? According to the scholar Bruce Watke, the word believe here is the Hebrew word that is better translated trusted. Abram now considers God to be true, reliable, and trustworthy. Okay, so now Abram has placed his faith in God. He trusts him. So listen, Abram's got his doubts. I don't know about you, God. I don't know if I can trust you. God says, let me tell you something. Through your son, this is going to happen. I'm going to give you a son. Now step outside. Look to the scars. That's how many, that's how numerous your ancestors will be. And Abram says, okay. I trust you. Okay. I believe you. Okay. My doubts, I sealed them right now. I believe, I trust. Now listen, there can be The reason I wanted to to narrow this down because we've got a real wishy-washy idea of what it means to believe in God. The majority of Americans would say, yes, I believe in God. But what what does this really mean? What does it mean to believe God in this way? Where your belief then gets counted to you as righteousness. What does it mean to believe God in this way? There's a, a very large difference between believing in God and entrusting God. James in the New Testament tells us that the demons believe in God, but they don't trust him. See, here Abram demonstrates his faith by putting his whole, listen, his whole weight into God. That's what it means to trust something. Look, when I'm leaning on this pulpit right now, I'm putting all of my weight on this pulpit. I'm trusting that this pulpit will hold me. This is not trusting the pulpit. Right? I don't need it. Now, if you've ever been to youth camp, you've ever been to one of those corporate centers sem- where you have to do the, the old, good old-fashioned trust fall. Anybody ever, You get your friends behind you, they hold hands, and you got to get up here and you got to put all your weight into it and fall back and hope that they catch you. That is a great picture. Very cheesy. But a great picture of trust. If you don't trust them, If they're not trustworthy, you hit the ground. There's no reversing gravity in the middle of it, right? To trust God means to put all of our weight into him. Where if he fails us, we fail. There is no, I'm going to kind of trust you, God. But if you don't come through, I've got my backup plan back here. To trust God means to completely lean into him. Now, we're going to look at the word righteous next or righteousness. This word is the fundamental Old Testament word. It's the virtue that is characterized by godly life. Scripture says God himself is righteous. So being righteous means acting in accordance with God's ways and rules. Okay, it's very much being like God. It's to be just To be honest, to be courageous, to be truthful, to be good, and ultimately to be holy. It's not a thing, listen to me here, it's not a thing that you can turn on and turn off. I'm going to be righteous now and then I'm going to be unrighteous later. It's a quality of, if you cut the thing in the middle, is it consistent? It's either you are righteous or you're not righteous. There is no kind of righteous. You are either righteous or you're not righteous, and that is judged, here we go, totally based on your heart and behaviors, on your actions. Now, this is where many people lose Christianity, so I want you to zero in on me. This is where so many people who have, who have lived in the scope of the church, inside the church, close to the church, under Christian parents, they live their whole lives in the church, miss the gospel. Every single world religion starts here. Every single world religion has their own way for a person to be righteous. Every religion has at its foundation a way or ways for a person or a people to be right with God and to be right with each other. Everyone, even secular humanists, have a way to be right with God and right with Each other, right? Secular just says you have to recycle and you have to ride a bike and you have to do, you know, worship trees and that kind of thing. But we all, they all have a a certain set of behavior that says, if you do this, you will now be righteous. You'll be right before God or the ultimate thing or right before mankind. Now, I can still remember having this conversation with a girl that I worked with at Whole Foods when I lived in Omaha. One day she threw out the statement, it's a really common statement, that all religions are the same. She literally had like created her own religion. She had like three different things combined in one. And she said, you know what, one thing I've discovered is that all religions are basically the same. Now this was like for me, I felt like I just got served up, right, like the loft ball. I'm like, yeah, I'm pulling back, right? I, I smiled and I, res- and I responded, you know what, you're absolutely correct. I said, every single religion in the world has a system of becoming righteous, a a, a way to earn their favor into the, earn their, uh, in their way into the favor of the God or gods. I told her, you are exactly right, except for Christianity. Now she looked at me stunned, right? And she was like, and she goes, go on. Now I'm going to pause that story and I'm going to get back to our text. Okay? Because all other religions have at their foundation this premise. This is what all other religions say. And maybe, I'm going to tell you this maybe this is what your religion says. Maybe this this is what your version of Christianity says. Maybe this is what your parents told you. Maybe this is what your Sunday school teacher told you. Maybe this is what your pastor told you. Maybe this is what you grew up hearing. Says this You have to be righteous. To be accepted, you have to be good. To be accepted, God loves good people. Be good. You don't want to be like those bad people over there. Be good. Be a good person. Don't lie. Liars are bad. You want to go to jail? Do you? Bad people go to jail. Every religion has that as its foundation. You have to be righteous in order to be loved. You have to be righteous in order to be accepted. They are behavior-based and morality-based religions. But Christianity is something totally and completely different. And you can see that in verse 6 with the word counted. Because because of Abram's faith and his confident trust in God, the Lord counted his faith as righteousness. That word counted literally means to reckon or to impute. It means that Abram was not actually righteous. He was not actually good enough. He was not actually clean. He was not actually pure. But instead, based on his trust in God, God put righteousness on him. Whoa! Sunday school teachers in the house. Old Testament. Before the law. Abram is justified by his faith. Unlike every other religion that says, be righteous to be accepted, the God of the Bible says, I accept you by grace through faith and I will count you righteous. Righteous. Count you righteous. Now, this should bring up, and maybe it doesn't, but this should bring up all kinds of questions. How can God do this? If God is righteous himself, and he always does what is good, right, and perfect, how can he call an unrighteous man who has sinned greatly against his wife and God, how can he call that guy righteous? How can he just deem this man righteous? Righteous. Wouldn't that make God unrighteous? If God is truthful, then how could he call a dirty man clean? How could God call a sinner a saint? How could God call a righteous man or an unrighteous man righteous and still be righteous himself? See, this is what I believe many people that grew up in the church, they don't get. I think when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, all of a sudden God just doesn't really see our sin anymore. God just kind of like gives us a pass. And like, ah, not a big deal. Now, listen, these are some good questions, but we're going to keep moving because what Moses does here, Moses is writing this. Moses is a brilliant storyteller. So what Moses does is he gives us a taste here. He gives us something that like goes, whoa, that, that's not right. And then he's going to, he's going to, Tell us what happened. So we should be asking this question. How can God do that? That doesn't seem right. Call him a dirty man. Call him clean. That doesn't seem right. And we're going to find out how God can do that in this next, well, a little bit later in this chunk of scripture. So let's just keep moving. Okay. Verse 7. And he said to him, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So he's reminding God of what he's, or he's reminding Abram of what he's already done. But he said, what Abram said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, look, look, before, if you picked up on that, he was doubting God. He kept saying, how do I know you are good? How do I know you will do this? How do you? And now he's saying, how do I know I? How do I know I? Be- before he was doubting God, now he's doubting himself. This is healthy. This is what we should do. Now, listen, if this covenant with God is something like, okay, Abram, see all the stars in the sky? If you do your part, I'll do my part. If it's a covenant like that, then I'm back here going, oh, man, how do I know I can do my part? How do I know I can come through? I don't know if I got it in me. he's doubting himself now. So God tells him, To go get a heifer, go get a female goat, go get a ram, and go get two birds. (laughs) Abram does it. Now listen, stop right here. This is going to be really weird for us. It already is if you read it. This is really weird because God doesn't give him any clear instructions. But Abram goes, gets these things, and then he does this. He cuts the big animals in half. He puts half on one side, half on the other. He makes an aisle of blood. And we're looking at, like, what is Abram doing? Okay? This is a very familiar thing. What God was telling Abram to do, it was familiar to Abram because it was something very cultural. It was common in his culture. Abram literally makes this isle of blood. Now, this is what he's doing. This is an ancient covenant ceremony. Now, you might think this is weird and this is out of the box, but we do the same thing. Not exactly the same but we have covenant ceremonies every time you buy a house, right? You sit down with your lawyer. They sit down with their lawyer. They have this contract written up inside this contract. There's certain stipulations. And what do you do? You sign your name to the contract. They sign their name to the contract. Now it's a legal binding covenant between two people. And inside this covenant, there's certain stipulations. If I don't uphold my side of the bargain, Bad things are going to happen. You can take the property back. I can lose money. There's also, in some contracts, threat of jail time. I could go to jail. I could lose a lot of things. Bad things can happen if I don't fulfill my side of the bargain. Right? Well, listen. We live in a written, a, a, a written word culture. Okay, a culture of the letter. Abraham or Abram lived in an oral culture. They didn't have written contracts. They didn't pass around books. They, they, they shared everything orally. They were taught orally. They memorized oral. everything was oral. So this, what we're about to witness is a visual picture. It's an oral covenant. If you're an actor in here, you should like it. It's a picture by words. Or, is that right? It's a, I don't know what it is. It's a story by picture. That's what I meant to say. There we go. Okay. <clears throat> So this is what a covenant looked like in an ancient oral culture. This is a picture contract. I want you, now listen, I'm going to give you a pause here. This is what I mean by this. Jeremiah 34, 18 gives us a glimpse inside of one of these ceremonies. And this is what it says, God speaking. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me. Listen, I will make them like the calf they cut in two and pass between its parts. Okay, here's what's going on. When you sign a contract, you say, here's my name. If I don't do this, you can take away my property. You can take away my money. Maybe you can even throw me in jail. It's inside the covenant, right? It's written there. This oral covenant is the same way. When he cuts that animal in half and he places it on both sides, what they're saying is people would walk through the aisle of blood and they would say, if I don't uphold my end of this covenant, let me be like this animal. Let me be cut off. Let me be cut open. There's one I was reading this this week. There was a um, one of these covenants found in Sumerian culture from from 800 B.C. And it exactly said, let my head be cut off and the heads of my children be cut off like these goats if we fail to uphold this covenant. This is a picture covenant. So when God says, go get a heifer, go get this stuff, make this, Abram knows what he's talking about because this is what common people did. If we're going to make a deal, we're not just going to shake on it. We're going to cut stuff. We're going to say, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, let this happen to me. So Abram goes out, he kills these animals, and now he's standing here and he's like, all right, God, let's. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm ready to walk this aisle. I'm ready to, to make this covenant with you. I'm ready to tell you that I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll be the man. And if I fail, you can kill me. I'm ready to do this, God. Verse 12. Now look, this just gets freaky. I'm just going to tell you that. You're cutting animals in half. You got an aisle of blood. And in verse 12, and the sun was going down. Of course, right? A deep sleep fell on Abram. That word deep deep sleep is the same thing that God put on Adam when Adam had to get knocked out and take take his rib out to make Eve. All right. So he's under like God is like doing something on him right now and behold look dreadful and great darkness fell on him that great darkness literally means terror it's darkness great darkness it's actually night terrors okay so this is an eerie creepy scene there's blood everywhere abram's ready to walk the aisle and all of a sudden he gets it gets dark He gets freaked out. He's afraid. This terror is coming upon him. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you need to highlight this. Know for certain that your offspring And I'm just, I'm going to skip this, but I just want you to underline that. No, for certain what, what God's going to do is prophesy how it's going to look. He's going to say, it's not going to be peaches and cream, baby. It's not going to be easy. You're going to be 400 years in Egyptian slavery, but I promise to bring you back. It's going to be tough for your people, but I want you to see this word. No, for certain there is no doubt in God's mind. God is not relying on the obedience of Abram. God knows in his sovereign plan, he gets what he wants. No, for certain. Then I want you to jump down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. A flaming, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch walked the aisle. Stop. Now, these words, this smoking, fire pot, and flaming torch are incredibly difficult in the Hebrew. Um, scholars, this is their best attempt, but what it's supposed... It, basically, this is it. Smoke and lightning. Okay? Lightning, it's like a flaming lightning. And, and I think it's meant to point us to what's going to happen in Exodus on the mountaintop when God shows up in smoke and lightning, and he gives the Ten Commandments to, to, to Moses... This is meant to point us to that. Basically, you got fire and lightning and God is there. And Abram is freaking out. And there's blood all over the place. This is a freaky scene. Right? But I want you to see what happens. This smoking fire pot and flame, in, in, in flame or in lightning is God's presence. It is a theophany. It is God showing up. And what does he do? He walks the aisle. Okay, in this covenant ceremony, you remember, you, you both walk the aisle. You say, this is going to happen to me if I don't obey. You both walk the aisle. Abraham does all this thing, and Abraham or Abram is expecting to walk the aisle and make his pledge and make his covenant with God and say, God, I promise I will be a good boy. From now on, I'm going to be your guy. How many youth camp sermons are built on that? Moses sets up this covenant making ceremony and God himself comes down and walks the aisle. Do you see that? Who didn't walk the aisle? Abram. Abram sets it up and sets sets back and watches and God shows up in lightning and smoke and walks the aisle. And who doesn't? Abram doesn't walk the aisle. Only God did. This is what theologians call a unilateral covenant. Unilateral. There's one person in this covenant. There's one person making this covenant. It's, It's not Abram. It's not... All right, Abram, you do your part. I do my part. That's what a normal covenant is, right? The bank lends you the money. They do their part. You do your part. You make the payments. This is God coming down and God making a unilateral covenant. Now you might be like, what the heck does that mean? Okay. This, Tim Tim Keller says, this is a covenant based on unconditional grace. This is a covenant based on unconditional grace. God meets with Abram and walks the aisle. Listen to this. This should shock us. God walks the aisle and God himself says, let me be like this heifer. If I don't keep this covenant, let me be like this goat. Let, God, the source of all life, says, let me cease to be God. Let life be taken from me. Let blood spill from my veins. Let me die if I don't keep this covenant. Stay where you are, Abram. Oh, my goodness. And what does Abram have to do? Absolutely nothing. This is a covenant based completely on grace. All Abram does is then respond in faith by trusting God. God is saying, Abram, I'm going to do it all. There is no, you do your part, I do my part. I will do it all. Listen. Abram doesn't have to walk the aisle and make a pledge to God because God is going to fulfill both sides of this covenant. God will never break it, but God also will perfectly keep his side of the covenant, but he will also perfectly keep Abram's side of the covenant. God is going to do both sides of the covenant. God promises to keep both sides of the covenant. He isn't trusting this to Abram's future obedience. God will make it happen. But what I find most shocking is that God doesn't just fulfill both sides of the covenant. But he takes it one step farther and God still pays the price for Abram's sin and disobedience. This is how God remains righteous while calling Abram righteous. This is how God deals with Abram's unrighteousness, that Abram is unfit to make a covenant with God. This is how God deals with Abram being unfit. What do you mean? We're going to have to jump around to some scriptures. If you got your Bible, go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 10. When you're there, say there. Yes, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Stop. I want you to remember this. Look at this. God walks the aisle and God says, let me be like this heifer. Let my blood be shed. Let me be broken. Let me be torn apart. Let's keep reading. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because, look, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. God says, I will fulfill both sides of the covenant and I'll take your punishment for not being able to fulfill it, for being unrighteous, for being sinful, for being broken. I will. Will take that on myself and I will be cut off and I will be broken and I will dwell in darkness. Hebrews 6. Go to Hebrews 6. I told you we're going to bounce around. Hebrews 6, 13 When you're there, say there. For when God made a promise to Abraham. Okay, stop. We're right back. He's he's referring to what we're talking about. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He, he walked the aisle by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Okay. Verse, let's just jump to verse 17 because we don't have that much time. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God sealed this covenant with an oath. Now, look at verse 19. We have this as a sure, this needs to be underlined. This might make its way on my body. This could be a tattoo coming, all right? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, an anchor of of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is going on? Why did He do this? Why did God walk the aisle by Himself? Why did God say, "I'm willing to die for you because you're unrighteous"? I will count you righteous. In order for you to be counted righteous, I must become like these heifers. Why did He do it so that we would have a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul? You know what's a bad anchor? Your obedience. You know what's a bad anchor? The hope that someday you can fake it till you make it. The hope that someday you'll be good enough to make God happy. The, the hope that someday you'll be a good enough wife and a good enough husband and and, and all and a good enough parent and a good enough employer and a good enough employee and a good enough... Run it down the list. You'll never be good enough. And that is an anchor that when it goes off, it lodges in sand. And As soon as the storms of life come, you find that you're pushed way away. You can't even see the land inside anymore. See, religion is a weak anchor. Nobody knows they're religious until the storms of life come. When the storm comes, their anchor pulls away, and then they shake their fist at God and they run away from their faith and they realize they were basing their life on their own performance, their own ability to be righteous with God. We have this sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. We ain't done. Galatians 3. We're going to go all afternoon. Man, we gorged our bodies on thanksgiving. Let's gorge our soul soul in the word of God this morning. Galatians 3, verse 6. When you're there, say there. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So when Abraham, listen, this is gonna, we're going to study this more later, but this is a big script flip. When Abram went out and he looked at the stars of the sky, he's thinking, oh, this is the Israelites. This is the Hebrew people. This is going to be my natural descendants. They flip the script and say, no, no, no. This is the descendants of the people of faith. So as we walk by faith, as we, as we have this, the firm anchor that lodges, that anchor that, that Jesus Christ that lodges in the gospel, we become now sons and daughters of Abram. Verse 13. How? How do we get to do this? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us if you're not Jewish, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. One more place, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. When you're there, say there. Okay. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, look, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a what? Gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's an offering to pay the price of wrath. By his blood. To receive by faith. Verse 28. For we hold that no one is justified by faith. Or that, that one we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now listen, this is the gospel. And this is so hard to preach to people who think they already get it. The gospel is constantly forgotten and needs to be rediscovered by every generation the sin inside of our heart it's calibrated to operate apart from grace it's calibrated towards religion tell me what to do to make god love me tell me what to do to be good we naturally and sinfully try to be righteous on our own we try to behave our way into god's good graces Listen, believers in this room, even believers who at one time embraced the gospel, they naturally, listen, they naturally drift away from the gospel. They drift away from the gospel. They lose their moorings. They, they, they drift into trying to earn what Martin Luther called an active righteousness. An active righteousness. This is what makes Christianity unique. It's grace. You don't have to walk the aisle. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done it all. If you enter into a covenant with the God of the Bible, you are saved by grace through faith and you are counted righteous. It doesn't matter how good or how bad you have tried to be. You, oh my God, Jesus help us. You do not have to take the oath. I grew up taking the oath every Sunday, every Wednesday, every youth camp. God, I promise this time it's going to be different. I give you everything this time. Let me tell you what, God, or the classic. If I pass this test, God, I'll give you it all. If you give me that girl, I'll be a missionary, whatever, right? We grow up taking oaths. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to sin that way again. God, I promise this is different. This time is different. I'll be a good wife. I'll be a good husband. I won't yell at my kids this time. God, I'll do it this time. I'll do it. No, no, no. This is the anchor of my soul. Jesus Christ took the oath for me. He obeyed perfectly for me. Jesus Christ performed for me. Jesus Christ was cut open and cursed for me. Jesus Christ was made me righteous because he was righteous for me. Jesus Christ did it by justifying me by his grace as a gift. And God is now pleased with me. God is overjoyed with me. God is thrilled with me. God is happy, rapturous with me because of Christ. God cannot in this moment be more happy with me because he's perfectly happy and satisfied with Christ. And that has been given to me. That has been gifted to me. That has been counted on my behalf. It's been put on me. My anchor holds, not because of my fickle, half-hearted, sinful obedience, but because Christ is my anchor and that anchor is lodged Firmly, once and for all, eternally into the bedrock of God's gracious covenant.
0: Hmm.
1: The anchor of my, whole, of my soul holds. When the waters rise... When the winds come, when the lightning strikes, when the waves come up, when all of life and everything around me, when I look around and say, my circumstances don't seem like they're matching up with what you've promised. When the wind beats against the doors, my anchor holds. When I fail, my anchor holds. If you find yourself making deals with God, you are trying to earn an active righteousness. If you get shocked at your own stupidity and your own sinfulness, you are living out of an active righteousness. I can't believe I did that. How could I do this? I should know better. You're trying to earn an active righteousness. If you feel superior to others, you are living out of an active righteousness. Righteousness. If you feel worthless, if you feel like a constant failure, you are living or trying to live out of an active righteousness. If you think you get it, you probably don't get it. And you're trying to live out of an active righteousness. I hope you see how pervasive this is. This is the foundation of all sin. Romans 14, 23 says, Anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So if you're trying, listen to me, please. If you're trying to be accepted, if you're trying to be good enough, if you're trying to please God in that way, if you're trying to be accepted, you're not trusting God. You're not believing the gospel. In fact, you're saying, Jesus, I don't need your righteousness, I want my own. I want to do it myself. I want to prove to the world that I'm good enough. I want to prove to you that I'm lovable. I want to prove to you that I can do it and make it, and I can be a disciple, and I can be a good mom, and I can be a good dad, and I can do it all. I don't need the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Look at me. Look at me. We need to see that in this story, we are Abram. We're impotent, And completely unable to do what God has called us to do. Can you imagine the feeling? God, I've been consummating this marriage with my wife for 60 years. No baby. And I look up to the sky and you say, I'm going to have lots of babies. Hmm. (laughs) Abram has tried all the Karma Sutra books. I mean, it's just nothing's working, right? He's eating all the herbs he's supposed to eat. Nothing's helping. He's impotent. He can't do it. Guys. He didn't need advice. He didn't need to be told, "Oh, try this or do that or do." He needed God to rescue him. We are impotent and completely unable to do what God has called us to do. We must rest. We must rest from our labor. We must rest from our work in the finished work of Jesus. Not Jesus plus our effort. So many Christians come to Christ and they realize it's all grace and then they begin to live their life trying to become righteous, trying to be sanctified now by our effort. No, no, no. You're sanctified the same way you're justified, by the free gift of God. Not Jesus plus our effort. We must receive this passive righteousness that cost God so much. And only by receiving this passive righteousness by grace through faith will we ever come to know the peace that passes all understanding. Do you realize, Christians, maybe that you've grown up in church the whole time, maybe you've been on the legalistic bent or the religious bent? When Jesus says he offers us peace that passes all understanding, the world looks at your life and they don't see peace. They see you going to a hundred different Bible studies. That doesn't look like peace. They see you stressed out, trying to be good enough and try to keep all the commandments and try, well, oh, uh, can I drink here? I don't know. Is there Christians in this room? Can I, is there a weaker brother in this bar? I don't know if there's a weaker brother. I better not take a sip today. How exhausting. The rest that comes from ceasing from our labor labor to prove to God that we are acceptable. Now, it's hard for me to describe this kind of freedom. See, I preached the gospel for about seven years before I experienced this myself. I was saved, but I didn't get it. I didn't believe the gospel. That I am worse than I ever thought possible, but simultaneously more love than I've ever hoped. What that means is that in Christ, we are done performing. Oh, the freedom. If you're firstborn, if you're firstborn in this room, that should be breath of fresh air to you. We are done in Christ, we are done performing. We're done being the good kid. We're done being the example for others to follow. We're done with that. Christ is our example. Christ was perfect. Christ performed. We don't have to fake it till we make it. We can, we can be done acting like we've got it all together. Threatening the kids on the way to church. Right? Threatening them on the way to church. Don't make me look bad today. You better behave because I don't want people. Right? We can be done with that. Guess what? I know your kids. They're sinful. They're wicked. You know how I know it? I've got them. And I was one too. I know your house is chaos. Stop acting like it's not. I know it's dirty. Stop acting like it's not. I know you're unorganized, more unorganized than you want to be. Stop acting like you're not. I know you feel like you're not accomplishing enough. Stop acting like you're, stop stressing out about it. This is life. You can't do it all. You can't control it all. Stop performing. Believe the gospel. Jesus Christ performed perfectly on your behalf. Man. Jesus, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. but we have failed to see that and we have failed to believe that and we have heaped legalism on people and we've heaped those heavy stones back on people of man-made rules and man-made religion and we've heaped that back on and we've, we've created this, this false version of Christianity that says that we're better than other people and that we've got it all together and that if we really love Jesus, then our life would look like this. When it's all based on the grace of God, Change us today. And that's, that's what communion, that's what communion is all about. People from different races and different backgrounds and different socioeconomic statuses, poor and rich, educated and uneducated, married and single, young and old, all come broken and sinful to the table to be reminded that God counts us righteous in Jesus. This is a meal of grace. This isn't about moral behavior and doing better. That's religion. This is about sin and grace. We are that bad and he is that good and he walked the God, I am amazed. The God of the universe humbled himself and came down and marched the Isle of Blood and said, let me be like this animal. And then you sent your son who was that animal, who was the lamb who was slain. And he lived the perfect life. He was perfect. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He never sinned. And then he died the death that the unrighteous deserve. And he gifted, he gifted his righteousness to us by faith. Father, I pray that the spirit would grant that in this room that we would believe and that the anchor of our soul would hold. Only you can do this, Father. Only you did it with Abram. He stood back and watched and believed. I pray that we can stand back and watch and marvel and believe today. Remind us of the gospel. Those who think they've believed it, all their life. Let them rediscover it. Let it awaken their soul. In Jesus' name, amen.